everyone, welcome back to it here in Apologetics. It's always brought to you by you with support on Patreon.com. Today I'm joined by Jacob Burbage of Caruso Apologetics and Holy Elephant Philosophy. Um, I think he's had a little bit of a delay, uh, but we figured we'd get started because a lot of the first part deals with the biblical studies, which Jacob is going to handle most of in this response to Apologia. But Jacob, what's up, my man? How are you doing? Yeah, doing very well, thanks. Uh you know, typical pandemic stuff right now where we got plenty of time to <laughs> respond to the internet atheists. So yeah, I'm looking forward to this. <laughs> yeah, it should be a lot of fun. So Pologia released a video um, called How to Stop Being a Christian in 2021, Four Simple Steps. Uh, so me and Jacob are going to kind of go through this video um, and respond. Jacob obviously runs Caruso Apologetics, which does a lot in like New Testament criticism and stuff. So he's going to handle a lot of the first part. And then we're going to get to the second part where he deals with like arguments for God's existence. And then I and hopefully Elephant Philosophy am going to deal with it. But unfortunately, EP is not here yet. Um, but we'll get this thing started. Do you have any kind of thoughts you want to say, Jacob, before we get into this video? Yeah, so watching through this video, and of course I'm specializing in this first part, I realized that Paul, just before you even begin, he doesn't give any evidence for what he's saying. He kind of assumes mm -hmm. that this is common knowledge, and I, I do want to present my side and my case, our case for the reliability of the Bible, but I think just watching through this video is kind of like Hitchens' razor. What can be, what's asserted without evidence can be dismissed without evidence. But we don't follow Hitchens, so we're going to actually provide some evidence. And <laughs> hopefully, hopefully we'll change some, uh, some minds on this. Yeah, um, we'll get started. We'll work through this video. And if you're listening, Paul, um, hope you just know that you're a cool guy. Um, and hopefully that we can just attack ideas. This isn't personal. That's something we've really tried to make an emphasis on. And it's just like, what is he saying? Is it true? Um, and we'll get through it. Let's do it. We love you, Paul. I was like you once, a Christian walking through life, struggling to shed those last remnants of unhealthy faith, holding you back from being the truth-affirming free thinker that you've always wanted. Well, don't despair and look no further because I'm about to share with you the shortcut to apostasy you need to stop being a Christian in four easy steps. Right. So I just wanted to pause right here for a second um, just because it seems like Paul makes it seem like, like faith is such a bad thing to have. And it's like, it just isn't like, thinking about like my own life and many other people's lives, like when they go into faith, it changes their lives in a positive way. Um, and like you could debate, like inspiring philosophy has done a lot of debates on is Christianity dangerous? And it turns out it's just not at all. There's a lot of positive effects, even if it wasn't true. Um, there's a lot of positive effects of being a Christian. Um, so I just wanted to give that brief thought. Do you have anything you want to say, Jacob? Yeah. I mean, honestly, the arrogance that comes off of, um, Apologia. Like I, I do like the guy and I think he's got really good content and it's it's really good stuff that he does. But honestly, the arrogance that comes off of him is just really difficult to take him seriously. And as we'll see in the next um few minutes, um <laughs> he just doesn't really know what he's talking about. Again, we do we love him, we love you, Paul, but uh it's 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 just the typical internet atheist, the kind of you know, hurt by fundamentalism hurt by creationism and you really want to just you know just put everything mm -hmm. behind you and i wonder for paul like if you're trying to reach non-christian or we're trying to reach christians and try to show them like the light of like skepticism and stuff um is this the way you do it like it just doesn't seem like as a Christian, like this isn't appealing to me to just say that, you know, you're just in darkness and you're not free thinking and things like this. It seems like there's just the wrong approach to reach Christians. It almost seems like it's just kind of like diving into like the rhetoric um, that a lot of like, I'll see people that comment that are atheists, especially on like my TikTok, that they kind of want to hear, um, at least from my perspective. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Honest, honestly, I mean, it's, it's just dealing with the typical arguments that they have and if there are any arguments at all, I mean, he—I don't think he actually makes any good arguments or any arguments mm -hmm. at all in at least my section, which we'll deal with here. He just makes assertions. And mm -hmm. I don't know. We'll we'll see what you have to say. Let's do it. Let's keep on going. If I can do it, anyone can do it. Are you ready? Number one, the Bible. What we know about Jesus and his father Yahweh, we know from the Bible. But is this collection of over 60 books the divinely inspired word of God? Or 
or is it something else? Your pastor will tell you that the most famous books, the Gospels, are written by eyewitnesses to the events of Jesus' life. But in truth, none of these authors claim to be eyewitnesses. Or even Do you want to stop there or do you want to keep on going, Jacob? I mean, there's just so much in like 10 seconds to deal with here, but yeah. we so can he, finish he, the bit where about, he kind of, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, that, it's fine. Don't worry. The thing that he says here about uh, the gospels don't claim to be eyewitnesses. So he's right about Matthew and Mark, but he's completely wrong about Luke and John. So in, in Luke's prologue, you see that he, um, Luke does claim that he has information from eyewitnesses. And then all throughout John, you have statements like you know, we, we beheld the glory of the word we have seen and we have touched and we have you know testified to these things in conjunction with events in the gospels like you know the in john 19 where someone's seen the crucifixion and says the person who has seen this has testified and we know his testimony is true so it, it doesn't really work out and, and he says that well they're not claiming to be eyewitnesses well duh that, that's not the case for mark there's no tradition that says that mark was a uh, follower of Jesus. So really, this argument only works for Matthew, and as, as I've demonstrated in my um, my authorship series, the case for Matthew's authorship is pretty strong. And I, this is the beginning where I really want to emphasize, has Paul seriously taken the time to sit down and read the scholarship from the conservative point of view? Has he taken the time to read books that challenge his position? Because I... I I really look forward to what reading books that challenge my position. My, my favorite scholars tend to be very liberal. I, I like John Dominic Crossan as much as he is kind of crazy. Um, but it's, it's really good to read books that challenge your positions. I, I really do wonder, has he taken the time to challenge his positions? Or as we'll see in the next few minutes, is he just like quoting things from Wikipedia or something with no citations? Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I think, I'm totally on page with you. Um, let's keep on going. Or even to have met Jesus. Sure, the complete manuscripts we have include the familiar names Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But all the early copies we have are fragments, without the titles. And when the 1st and 2nd century church fathers quote other books, they tell us the author's name. But when they quote these Gospels, they don't use any names at all. Sure looks like someone around 160 AD decided to attach plausible known names to the completely anonymous works in order to give them authority. Right. A um, few different things here that Paul brings up with regards to um, like how the early church fathers treated the Gospels um, and just like think like the dating of like when people would attach names to them. But, like what, what's your thoughts on this overall bit, Jacob? So that first part really gets under my skin. So when, when he says like the complete Gospels, like the complete manuscripts have their names, he puts up a, a picture of uh, P75, that kind of golden looking manuscript. Or he thinks that that's some kind of uh, finished and complete manuscript, but it's not. It's actually one of the, those early copies that he's talking about. So he says all these early fragments, uh, they don't have the name. Well, he puts up a picture of an early fragment that has a name. And it has both mm -hmm. John's name and, and Luke's name. Like, you can even see it as, like, probably should go back and take a look at that manuscript, the, the, the big one that he put up. It literally yeah, I can has do that. Luke's name and John's name right there. If you can find it right there. Right here? Uh, the last one. Uh, last. Is yeah, it one. this one? Wait, no, not those people. This yeah, one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep, right there. So you can see it right there. It has their names right there. But this is actually an early fragment. So he's saying that the early fragments don't have the names, but that's an early fragment that has a name. So huh. I don't know what oh he's God. talking about with saying that, well, we don't really know. And then that, that tiny little fragment, the P52, well, yeah, of course mm -hmm. it doesn't have a name because it's a tiny fragment. It's only about as big as a, a credit card. So, yeah, you're not mm -hmm. going to get the names of people in these tiny fragments. You'd be pretty lucky to do so. And, again, there's this assumption that he has where he's providing no evidence that the, the Gospels just, we don't know who they are. And there's still that debate in scholarship on whether or not they were anonymous. I recommend people read uh, Simon Gathercole's recent article from a couple of years ago, the alleged anonymity of the Gospels. And there's still this ongoing debate on whether or not they are actually internally anonymous. And I wonder, again, has Pologia taken the time to read these arguments? Or is he just assuming his conclusion and then running with it? And then you have mm -hmm. furthermore the oh the Clement stuff. I mean this 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 really gets under my skin as well because 
if he takes the time to really read Clement, this is his letter to the Corinthians. The reason that he names Paul in that letter is because that's the people that he's speaking to, where he quotes, like, take up the, the epistle of the blessed apostle Paul. Well, there's a reason that he says it, because he is writing to the Corinthians himself. So there's no reason for him to name the authors of other writings when he's speaking to the Corinthians, like, hey, guys, you have this letter, pick it up and read it, because you're, you're being silly. And we, we know that Clement was in possession of other writings in the New Testament. We know that he was in possession of Acts and Titus and Second Peter. He never mentions their authors. Well, there's a reason for that, because he doesn't have to. That's not the purpose of his uh, letter to give us a deep exegesis of the authorship of these different writings. And it's, it's, it's him imposing his ideas onto a, onto a text. Like, why, why can't he mention it? We need more testimony from him. And then he goes on to say that, you know, someone around 160 attached to these names. But ironically, he completely ignores Papias. He ignores mm -hmm. the early church father, or I think you guys call him Papias or whatever. I don't but know. Americans he's, um... <laughs> Yeah, you are. Um, <laughs> you've got these, this church father, Papias, from around late first century, early second century, and he has the names of Matthew and Mark. He names Matthew put together the oracles of the Lord, and each man interpreted them as best they could. So mm -hmm. it's very likely that Papias in the late first or early second century had these gospels in his hands. Why does Paul not mention this? I'm, I'm just, mm -hmm. I'm shocked that he doesn't mention this or he's completely ignoring this. I don't know why. Hmm. Yeah, I, I literally copied and pasted that quote from um, Papias in because I just looked at it and I'm like, it's just, it seems, unless the only argument you can make from Paul's perspective is that Papias is just unreliable. Um, but it still would contradict the idea that no one is saying who wrote these gospels until 160 AD. Um, so it's yeah. just kind of like, it seems like it's just whatever point Paul's trying to make with this, it just seems like it falls short, at least um, from the standard he's putting forth. Exactly. And, and there's this kind of weird conspiracy idea. It's like the church what came together and it's like, let's decide who these writers were. And like around 160, there was this mysterious mm -hmm. unknown council or something that they just assigned these names to. Well, we know that doesn't work, first of all, because of what we just said, Papias around late first, early second century, talking about Matthew and Mark. But then you have this idea of like, well, how, how did all of these different church fathers get the names right? Mm, what kind of yeah. conspiracy is going on here? Yeah, and it, it, it's it interesting because it sense because you have what's it going? Mm -hmm. No, I was just gonna say it's interesting to think about because a lot of the times it's like yeah they just put these names on the gospels to make them um, like seem like they're reliable, but it's interesting the names that are on the gospels because you have like Matthew and Mark who um, they're not significant at least in the New Testament story yeah. and Luke not really either. It's really only John who has a kind of big role in the story of the New Testament, and then as you look at the like the gospels that people would reject is like non-authentic at least in the early church like thomas or peter these are like the big names the people you think you'd put on the gospels if you're trying to make them sound authentic so i just it's really interesting because it it just yeah. doesn't seem to work paul's idea yeah and, and again i would really want to know from paul has he taken the time to consider the arguments made by conservative scholars and taken the time to challenge his own position because again there are there are so many different positions that you can take on this i mean the scholars in the 20th century were like well lazarus wrote john or type or was it matthias wrote john and there was mm -hmm. different theories so you can't you can't just throw out an early date and an early authorship for john just because you know you found some i, I don't know where he's getting his information from it's probably bart Ehrman or something but uh, i don't want to make any uh, assumptions mm -hmm. but i want to know where he's getting this information from and why he actually believes it but he's providing no evidence for it so yeah yeah, um, let's keep on going. Confidence that Paul the Apostle wrote seven books of the rest of the New Testament. Those books that remain are anonymous, ambiguous, or far worse, blatant forgeries, where the secret authors are signing someone else's famous name. The Old Testament. Right. Um, so now he attacks the, attacks the rest uh, of the New forgeries. Testament, Jacob. It's, it, I just, you know a lot more <laughs> about this than I do. Um, so I'll let you give the comment, but I just want to say, like, Paul makes it sound like it's just a fact that like we only have like the seven authentic Pauline epistles and everything else is just kind of throw it all away. It's it's definitely like forgeries. And that's just yeah. like from what I understand, that's like the most skeptical possession you can t position you can take. Like 
he doesn't consider like maybe it's just the pastorals like first and second timothy and titus that aren't actually written by paul um because a lot of people would accept the other three i forget it's like ephesians second thessalonians and colossians i believe um yeah. i could be wrong yeah. on that so he just takes like the most skeptical position possible and just presents it as like this is true for sure um but i'll let you kind of respond jacob now no i mean he completely misrepresents even just the basic scholarship on this it, it's still like 50 50 on whether colossians is authentic or not and uh so there's a guy called werner george kummel probably the top liberal scholar of the 20th century even he would say colossians is authentic and so there, there's this really broad range of different ideas about these letters but he paul paints this as if it's like some kind of and as, as Toby just said in the chat, it's almost comical, this idea that, mm -hmm. well, you know, everyone already knows that Colossians are authentic. And Paul later goes on to say, yeah, the apologists are trying to uh, work their way around this. Well, no, we actually have genuine arguments to deal with this. I mean, mm -hmm. there's, there's, oh, there's so many different errors that he has with this. And again, where's the evidence? He provides no mm -hmm. evidence of this position. It's just like, yeah, everyone already knows this. Well, no, you need to actually give us the evidence. And again, Hitchens Razor, what can, as asserted without evidence, we can dismiss without evidence. Mm -hmm. um, but he's, he's just he's parsing a consensus that doesn't really exist, which gets on my nerves, to be honest. Yeah, let's keep on going. Someone doesn't fare any better. The first five books, the heart of the Torah, doesn't come from the pen of Moses, as Jesus professed. It is very clearly a literal stitching together of multiple holy documents from different times and different regions. The only serious debate here is how many books were merged. Three, four, ten, more? And those middle... Yeah, again. Yeah, it's just... One thing I think about is it's like... He infers like I, I have if the, like it's like the JDEP hypothesis. I'm not very well versed in biblical studies. If that's true, I really have no problem with yeah. it. Like it doesn't bother me. But like the idea that every the only serious position that these things are stitched together that is is true. It's just like he's just projecting again. Like this wasn't this hypothesis wasn't even idea an idea until like the 19th or 18th century. Um, people always just assumed that there was one author of the Pentateuch before then. So. He could be right. I don't know where he got the 10 source thing from, but like he could be right that it's like these five sources that are stitched together, but it just projects it. Once again, he just projects it like this is absolutely true. And there's a lot of debate on this thing. But what are your thoughts, Jim? Absolutely. Yeah. And honestly, I think he's a, about 100 years late with his scholarship on this. So he, mm -hmm. he's quoting, like, like you said, the JEDP theory, where it's like split into the different sources. Now, he did mention it was up, split up to four, but this mm -hmm. notion that there's 10 or more, I mean, that, that's a phenomenon from about 100 years ago that no scholar holds today. That the majority of Old Testament scholars would say, yeah, it's J, E, D, and P, the different sources from like the first millennium. But no scholar today would hold that it's 10 or more. That's like the fringe of the fringe from like the 19th century. And that's slowly been dying for the last hundred years. No one holds that anymore. And so it, it's this idea of the documentary hypothesis. Um, but you've even got skeptical scholarship uh, today. So for example, Thomas Thompson, who's a, a skeptical scholar and he's like, you know, Abraham didn't exist, all that kind of stuff. He's very much mm -hmm. a non-Christian scholar. He would say that at least Genesis one to Exodus 23 is like a unified narrative because of the, you know, these are the generations of and so on and so forth the different um pieces like fit together with exodus and genesis even he as a skeptical scholar would say yeah this is kind of a unity so even in the skeptical circles you have these ideas that don't line up with anything that paul just said and again i want to know has paul seriously taken the time to read and survey the evidence that has been provided by the conservative scholars i mean not even the conservatives just read people today Modern liberal scholars would say what he just said is nonsense. Like the the four stuff, mm -hmm. JEDP, sure, but ten or more. I mean, that's just that's a phenomenon of like a hundred years ago. And I don't know where he's getting his information from. Hmm. Keep on going now. Middle books, where you find most of the so-called prophecy. It turns out, generally, the pre-Jesus predictions were written after the events actually happened, not before. And the things Jesus fulfilled can't be confirmed to have happened at all. Okay. More likely, early Christians created connections. <laughs> yeah. 
what are your thoughts jacob so oh, there, there's this there's so much that i need to speak about this so first of all before we even go on to like this whole prophecy thing with uh genesis and the torah and i, I forgot to mention this we have mm-hmm. so much evidence that this stuff actually comes from the second millennium and it's really early and it dates to the time of moses so you have genesis written with third and second millennium myths in mind which reflects a time mm-hmm. period leading up to the conquest of canaan you have the traditions of the patriarchs fitting the time of the second millennium you have egyptian loan words in the exodus narrative which makes sense under moses authorship because he's like you know the egyptian prince and you know, it, it all just makes sense and the all the whole book of deuteronomy is written in a treaty form that only existed in the second millennium so these ideas that he's espousing right now none of this is authentic for today's scholarship he's about 100 years late and <laughs> just it boggles my mind. I really do want to know where did Paul get these ideas from? Is it, I hope he's not getting it from Ehrman because I don't think even Ehrman would say this. Like this is the fringe mm-hmm. of the fringe, and oh, it just it gets on my nerves. But anyways, you have well, I have my notes here. Prophecy after the fact. Now this this part gets on my nerves as well because he gives no example, and I'm mm-hmm. assuming he's talking about Daniel. If he is, then he hasn't made it very clear. So he's talking about, like, I think the prophecy of um, the fall of the Babylonians at the hands of the Medo-Persians. And that's the prophecies that Daniel's talking about. And yeah, obviously the liberal scholars are going to attack that and say, well, it must be written after the fact. Um, Mm -hmm. But we have more than enough evidence to say that no, Daniel was actually a book from the 5th or 6th century BC, written around the time that Daniel would have lived. And again, has Paul seriously taken the time to survey the literature from both sides and to come to the conclusion of whether or not we can date Daniel to an earlier time? Because based on just, like, just read the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls, which have Daniel in it, they date to the time around the, um, uh, the revolt of the Maccabeans, which is one of the prophecies that Daniel talks about. But if that's the case, then these are these are later copies, which means that Daniel must have been much, much earlier. So that in and of itself just destroys this idea that Daniel was written after this revolt. And I wonder if Paul has genuinely taken the time to know this. Or is he just mm-hmm. finding things off the Internet and then parroting them? And it just it really bugs me. It really bugs me. I don't know if you have anything to add to this. No, I think he did a pretty good job um, summing it up here. And it's just like, I'd encourage everyone, whether you're a Christian or a skeptic listening to this, just take the time to read both sides. Because a lot of the things that are said in this video, I think you could say at least that they're debated if you just kind of read like the positions contrary to Paul. Because he, he just makes everything sound like a fact. And it's just not. There's a lot of debate and there's a lot of gray area and there's a lot of questions. And yeah, so. Exactly. Keep yeah. on going. Mm-hmm. Do you have anything you want to add before we keep on going? No, it's it's just like the stuff he's about to get into is the whole mimesis stuff. And it's like, yeah, they were written after um, after the fact and that kind of stuff. And it, it, it does get on my nerves that Paul would be saying these kinds of things, but he has no citations. He has no evidence to back up mm-hmm. his position. And I, I think you and I both agree he's a very smart guy. He knows what mm-hmm. he's talking he about, at least in sometimes. But you have these kinds of ideas that come across and his audience, because it's, it's a popular audience, he's a popular channel, it's not a very scholarly backing kind of channel. Mm-hmm. His audience are going to eat this up and it's going to be like, how can you say these kind of things without providing the evidence? But then your audience is going to take it in and assume that's true when there's a whole bunch of scholarship on these issues from both sides that will say, what you're saying is nonsense. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, oh, it, it just, it, it, it breaks my heart as well because Paul, as a f- former fundamentalist, former like young earth creationist, being hurt by that kind of church, it, it really does get on my nerves that someone who comes out the church and then retains just that little bit of fundamentalism to continue rejecting what they believe. And mm-hmm. it's it's honestly heartbreaking and we 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 pray for Paul to come back. Yeah.
Mm-hmm. Um, in the app programmer, we will do a little bit of questions, just a tiny bit once we get to this video, but we got a lot more to go. So we'll keep on going. Make the New Testament link up to the Old Testament, like The Empire Strikes Back was written to connect to Star Wars. Sure. Evangelical apologists have come up with elaborate excuses for these problems that anyone can observe, but the fact that they make these excuses just affirms that the problematic observations are accurate. If you briefly set aside the spin of people who signed a Bible is Perfect pledge in order to keep their jobs and the post hoc excuses of devoted adherence, you'll discover that the book is incredibly human without any quality that requires divine inspiration. Yeah, um, there's a few things here that he kind of brings up. And one thing that I think is just very unhelpful is just projecting onto people, like saying people have to like sign Bible as perfect pledges and stuff. Because I know a lot of the people that Paul is talking about, just like going to a Christian university such, and that's not the way they think. Like I've been with them, been to their houses. Like these aren't people that are just trying to get paid. Like these are people that genuinely believe what they believe. They're not just trying to like find uses for their faith. So I just think it's kind of frustrating when, and, and Christians can be just as guilty of this, when we just project onto other people, they believe X because of Y, because they're biased or they don't want to reject it or they want the money. Because I could say, look at all the atheists make a bunch of money on their Patreon accounts. And that's why they keep making these videos. So it's just yeah. projecting onto people like this. I just think it's not helpful. No, do you have I mean, anything you, you, you want to add before we characterizes any kind of sorry am i breaking up or something no 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 you're good so um this this gets on my nerves because he he characterizes anyone who disagrees with his position on this as you know the evangelical apologists when as, as we've already demonstrated there are a bunch of non-christian skeptics who would say the things that he's he's said is just silly mm-hmm. And it's nonsense. Mm-hmm. And, and the it's the fact, same the with the natural to... theology. Yeah, the whole natural theology thing. And it, it, it bugs me because oh, it... with, with the mimesis thing, obviously you have... So the mimesis is like where uh, apparently, according to the skeptical scholars, Jesus and his stories were written to fit the Old Testament prophecies. Now, the problem with that is, is that you have um, in the culture and in that environment, there was an expectation for the Messiah. And you have uh, John the Baptist, for example, and he was com- he was completely confident and aware that he was fulfilling prophecy because he quotes from Isaiah and Malachi. And it's, pr- it's pretty clear that these people knew that they were fulfilling prophecy and it makes complete sense they would want to emulate this idea in the Jewish culture. And so I actually have a quote here from Craig Keener about, you know, the the claim that the miracles of Jesus were just tacked on later on. He says this in his book on miracles. Links between Elijah and Jesus in the Gospels do not make one suspicious of their uh, tradition if one grants that miracle workers themselves could have looked to earlier biblical accounts, for example. Of course, the earlier Christians would have viewed the correspondences as favorable and certainly to counter the magic charge. More to the point here, Jesus and his early followers, like some other Jewish wonder workers, may have deliberately emulated these models. So there is no evidence to suggest that these are just uh, stories that were tacked on later. It ultimately comes down to the worldview that you currently have right now. Were they fulfillments or were they mm-hmm. written later on? And if, if you study the... Um, old tradition for example where you see that there's a very rigid kind of um control that they had i recommend people read berger gerhardson and his kind of um rabbinic model that he's invented where it shows that these early jews early christian jews they would have followed these kinds of devices and motifs where they would have ensured that these these stories of jesus would have been transmitted reliably and i think paul has completely thrown this out the window and I wonder if he even knows these scholars, like these names, these people, mm-hmm. these journals. Has he taken the time to actually research any of this? Or is it just kind of all being thrown out? And it, it really does blow my mind. And you, you also have this stuff where, um, like, I'm not sure if you know the Abraham Lincoln, JFK kind of links between them. It's like, oh, there's a very big coincidence where they're basically 
the same kind of person. I'm not sure if you've heard of it. I'm not familiar with it, but I'm familiar with the idea. Yeah, so there's about 20 different coincidental details between JFK and Abraham Lincoln, where they were both, mm -hmm. I can't remember the specifics, but they were both killed by Southerners near their wives, and it was a different, it, it was the same kind of situation between them. Imagine if we're applying a thousand years from now, historians looking back on this, if we're applying what Paul is applying to this now, clearly JFK was just some invented person based on Abraham Lincoln for the purpose of, you know, defeating the Russians or something or whatever. If we applied that kind of uh, thinking to this, then it's just going to be a rabbit trail that we don't want to get down. And it's not historical mm -hmm. in any way. It, it just blows my mind that someone who's clearly as smart as Paul has not taken the time to read through any of the literature on this. And there's more mm -hmm. than enough. So I, I don't know why this is an issue for him. I don't know why it causes problems for anybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's keep on going. There's a lot there, um, but we'll keep going here. I won't even go into the bewildering lists of Bible contradictions. From the mundane to the damning, Christians try to tap dance around them. But something written by God shouldn't need this much fixing. Which brings us to number two. Right. Do you want to say anything about contradictions? Like, I mean, at least me personally, like, I don't, contradictions don't really bother. Like, if there are genuine contradictions, that doesn't really change anything for me because it's like Christianity is based on did Jesus rise from the dead? Does God exist? But like, a lot of these contradictions that, and he doesn't bring any specific examples up. But what are your thoughts, Jacob? Well, I mean, it's kind of like how the UNF creation is. There, Jacob. You. If it's like, if, if evolution is true, oh yeah, I'm here. I think I might have dropped out. Uh -oh. <laughs> I should be here. Is he there? Well, I think I'm, he might have lost his internet. If you can hear me, guys, I think I'm taking over this channel. <laughs> no, but if, if you guys can still hear me, I think I'll I'll continue just speaking if Zach's uh, lost it here. Um, it, it's kind of like how the young earth creationists and evolutionists argue. And the fundamentalists like Ken Ham would say, well, if evolution's true, why does it need defending? It's kind of like the same argument that Paul's saying here. If you have this um, idea, then you're going to be defending it. But that doesn't mean that if because you're defending it, it has to be false or it needs defending. Oh, and there he goes. I've taken over the channel. <laughs> oh, that's upsetting. Oh, wait, there I'm he is. Back. There he is. Uh, my internet, I literally am at university right now. So my internet should be like amazing but apparently today it's just like for the first time ever it's like all right we're done here um but i should be back now and hopefully we can finish through did you hear anything i was saying because i was talking about like the <laughs> the program was heard, like, let's take over zach's channel <laughs> i heard you say i'm gonna take over this channel and i'm like okay i'm about to kick you off this stream right now when i come back so <laughs> did you hear anything i was saying about like the young earth creationist or anything like that no, I did not. But yeah. no, basically, I was just saying, like, you know how the fundamentalists say, well, if evolution is true, why does it need defending? And basically, mm -hmm. there's the same thing that Paul's doing right here. If if the Bible is like the word of God and all this stuff, then honestly, why is it that uh, you, know, you have to defend the Bible? Surely God is that in. If it's Christianity is true, yeah. why do you have to defend it? It's the same argument that the mm -hmm. fundamentalists make. And it gets on my nerves yeah. that like what I said earlier, Paul coming out of a fundamentalist home, young, young creationist home, he's clearly retained just enough of his fundamentalism to continue rejecting Christianity in the sense that, mm -hmm. that he will use those kinds of arguments. And I, I, I kind of like how JP Holding puts it, it's the fundy atheists where people, mm -hmm. they, they accuse us of being like fundamentalists, but at the same time, if they've come out of that fundamentalist background, they still have got a little bit of it there. And so mm -hmm. this this whole thing about you know, all his arguments that he's made today, no evidence, no citations, just assertions. 
and it mm -hmm. really gets on my nerves. Yeah, I understand. And we're going to see a, a pretty um, similar thing, I think, with um, this step two, which is God. And I know it's just a 10-minute video where he's just like trying to overview everything and the apologetics and philosophy and stuff. But it is kind of disappointing to see um, the reasons he brings forth. But I mean, are you ready to head to step two? Yeah, go ahead. I think it's, the, it's your turn to take over now. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll lead this part. Let's do it. Um, EP did email me and he said he can't make it today. Um, something came up at the last moment. So it's just you and me for the rest of the okay. stream, Jacob. No worries. I don't think we can hear it. Yeah, this is really frustrating. And it, with like with you of all the New Testament stuff where you wonder, like, did Paul like read any of like the the contrary like new testament opinion it's the same thing here because if you read like a lot of these like serious theistic philosophers they're not doing these i don't know therefore god things like if you read alex Proust, it's like there's a necessary foundation the foundation can't be limited um or if you read like robin collins we have this fine tuning which we wouldn't expect under naturalism but we would expect it under theism it's just like it's just this broad proje projection that all arguments for god are just like science of the gap argue um like out of the gaps arguments and it's just frustrating but you have any thoughts i mean this isn't my field but definitely mm -hmm. uh if if we've gotten any idea of what he says about biblical history and he's going to apply that now i think we should be taking what he says with a, a grain of salt i mean he's going to go into like physicalism and things like that about the brain and you know, the mm -hmm. concept of sin and, and that kind of theology i mean if, if anything that we've seen so far is an indicator of what he's about to do, then, yeah, we're in for a wild ride. Yeah, and it's just, it's funny because he says that no answer, like saying I don't know is a better answer than just any answer. And in all these clips that are about the show, he gives his answers. He doesn't just say, um, I don't know. He just, he says, here's something that I think is a better answer um, than like the theistic answer. But let's get into some of Paul's answers. I don't think we can hear it on our end. Yeah, I mean, we all agree that matter and energy existed before the Big Bang. I think I'm I think I'm quoting here, and if I'm not, I, I apologize, Paul. Um, but yeah this just isn't true like i know so many of different like i was talking with like michael strauss a little bit ago christian like just like cosmologists that would disagree with what paul said that matter and energy aren't fundamental there's the whole quantum mechanics idea that quantum mechanics undermines everything and it's the foundation um more or less um and like the matter and energy thing I don't think I've ever heard Paul respond to the argument from arbitrary limits, which is like um, all limits have a cause. Um, energy and matter are limited. There's a finite amount of matter and energy in the universe. Therefore, they would have a cause, an explanation for why there's, say, 100 units instead of 101 or 99, because limits depend on explanations. So it's just, once again here, it just seems like Paul is just hasn't really engaged with like what people actually say from how do we get from there being a necessary being or something necessary to there being a God. Like there's a lot of work on this. And I, do you have anything else you want to add Jacob? No, I mean, he is like the pop uh, atheist evangelist, you know, he's kind of like a ever, an ever so slightly smarter Ricky Gervais. And you, you'd be expecting the kind of uh, things that he's responding to are not necessarily, you know, the level of proofs or um, obviously he's responded a lot to Craig, but Craig's again, very, a very popular apologist. And mm -hmm. so the stuff that he's going to be dealing with is more the popular level stuff like Sean McDowell and Ken Ham, Ken Hovind, that kind of stuff, the Genesis apologetics kind of stuff. And th those, mm -hmm. those kind of low hanging fruit, to be honest, so I'm not sure if you mm -hmm. actually engage with those kind of philosophers like Swinburne and things like that. Yeah. And I, I do want to say I apologize because I forgot to share the audio when I reshared the screen when my internet decided to die. So that I think everyone listening will just miss, like there'll be a blank, like 30 seconds there. But Paul was just talking about, um, you may have believed in, 
you may have been told that God, we need God to explain the origin of the universe out of nothing, um, but cosmologists agree matter and energy could be fundamental, um, and that's how the universe could have formed more or less. And then um, matter and energy could just have always existed, like theists would say that God always existed. So at best, we're kind of like at this checkmate here. Um, so I apologize if you missed that. But you ready to keep going, Jacob? Yeah, go ahead. That God is necessary to create life. But starting with the Miller Year experiments in the 1950s, right up to RNA replication of the last decade, to prebiotic peptide research of 2020 and continuing now, the story of chemicals coming together to self replicate, self organize, and mutate to improve is slowly being revealed piece by piece. It's not complete and may not be complete in my lifetime, but nothing supernatural is required to connect the dots. You may even listen. I actually kind of agree with Paul on this point because I, I have no, I've never studied the origin of life. So I have no idea, but um, I would tend to agree with him because I think there is some sort of like natural explanation. Cause I kind of would agree that God created things and set it into an order where creation can kind of like unfold itself. Um, so I would say that there's like a yeah. providential explanation for the origin of life. So I honestly, at this point, I don't really have a problem with what Paul's saying more or less. No, I mean, it's largely coming from his, again, the fundamentalist background that he has. Mm -hmm. If he's yeah. going to assume this literalist kind of understanding of Genesis, and as you know, I've been studying Genesis a lot lately. And mm -hmm. I, I think if you want to put in a, in a list the most likely interpretations of Genesis, uh, at the very bottom is the, the modern fundamentalist uh, young earth creationist model. Like that's at the bottom of the bottom right now. And so you've, you've really got to think about, okay, so we're talking about abiogenesis, we're talking about the origin of life, we're talking about evolution, these kinds of things. And again, there's a whole bunch of literature that's been done on theistic evolution, alternative interpretations of Genesis. Is, is this really to cause a problem? Or is this more him, mm -hmm. again, projecting his problem that he had with uh, Christianity and then perpetuating that problem even further and saying, well, there's no solution, abiogenesis, all this stuff debunks, you know, uh, Christianity. And again, it's more fundamentalist atheism now. And that's, I think, a big problem mm -hmm. when it comes to his uh, searching for this. Also, by the way, Kyle, um, he said that he's free to join. So if EP is not going to be able to join us, would that be okay to bring him along? Yeah. Um... Sure. I mean, we have a few more minutes left. Um, I'll put it in the private chat. You can send it because phone is the hotspot that's producing this internet right now because my internet died. Um, so <laughs> I'll leave that up to you. But he's free to join. But we're going to keep on going here. I've been led to believe that God is necessary to explain the appearance of design in the natural realm. Well, the sun appears to rise in the morning and to fall at night. But we now understand that appearance is deceiving us. It is the earth that moves, not the sun. Just like a naive puddle that might be amazed how perfectly the whole fits his shape, so too we have the wrong perspective on design. Appearances can be deceiving. You may have been like Yeah, the puddle analogy um, was a little bit frustrating to hear. I do have a clip that I prepared. I interviewed um, Michael Strauss recently, who's like a Christian physicist um, or an astrophysicist. And I asked him or someone in the live chat asked him about the puddle analogy. So I do think that it'd be better to hear his perspective than mine on this because he has some very um, interesting words to kind of say about the puddle analogy. So just make sure you, you should be able to hear the audio. But if you don't, Jacob, just let me know. Faith. So what is your thoughts on the puddle analogy in regards well, to fine tuning? I don't want to, you know, really criticize anyone, but Anyone who brings up the puddle analogy doesn't understand analogies or doesn't understand what the fine-tuned argument is. Mm -hmm. Here's the, the puddle analogy, for those who don't know, is it's that you know the puddle looking at the hole he's in and saying, the hole is made perfectly for me because I fit into it perfectly, therefore it must be designed. Mm -hmm. but, but that's crazy, and here's why. It's please don't use it if you're an atheist. Please come up with something that actually makes sense. Because water will fit in any container, but life cannot fit anywhere. And everyone agrees with that. The criteria for life are extremely, extremely narrow. The puddle can fit anywhere. There's no criteria for where a puddle can look. Any puddle that's scientific will look at the surroundings and go, you know what? It doesn't matter what the shape of this is. I'll fit into it. But any scientist who looks at the criteria for life says, you know what? 
it's really, really hard to get life. If there are 10 to the 500 universes out there, almost none of them have life. The puddle mouth is the worst. I mean, there are good arguments for why you might be an atheist or why you might not believe in fine tuning. Well, there's not great arguments for why you might not believe in fine tuning. There's arguments for why it might not be God. But the puddle analogy is one of the worst things I've ever heard to try to describe it because the analogy stinks. The puddle, a scientific puddle would really know very quickly that he could fit anywhere. But a scientific life form knows very quickly that it's very, very hard to create a universe for life. And it's not just I happen to fit in this one. Now, there is the weak anthropic principle or the selection effect. That is that I, I'm here, so therefore the universe must be life-friendly. But that's not what the Poe analogy says. The Poe analogy is saying I'm here because it fits me perfectly. Yeah, um, I feel like that's enough to be said on the puddle analogy. Um, Kyle, welcome. How are you doing? Yo, how's it going? Glad to to save, save your butt and help you out. No, I'm just kidding. Because <laughs> um, elephant philosophy abandoned us. Um, but we're going to keep on going here um, and look at the next reason, which why Paul re- thinks well, there's no well, reason to believe By the way, I'm not at all prepared for this, so we'll see how well I uh, respond. But I think I got this. I think we can, we can crush I- it, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's only that much, there's not much left here. Um, there's a couple more reasons to reject God, and then we'll be on to the uh, other parts. So it'll be fun. To believe God is necessary to explain consciousness. But while our understanding of how the property of consciousness emerges from brains is incomplete, the discoveries of neuroscience repeatedly demonstrate our mental states are in effect of physical states. You may have been led to believe. Right. This is interesting. Um, Paul, at least in this clip, it doesn't seem like he's engaging with like the hard problem of consciousness or like any of these like philosophical arguments um, for why to, you'd believe that consciousness isn't just emergent from the brain. Um, he just says, okay, there's a correlation between these physical states and mental states, which, you know, is fine. But then the neuroscience is very limited on this. Like if you, like I was just reading an article last night about how it's just neuroscience is very sketchy. Um, regard if you want to like make the argument that like consciousness just emerges, which is fine whatever but even if it's true um it doesn't still it doesn't answer things like the hard problem of consciousness it doesn't answer what i had a thought um shoot i totally forgot what my thought was um but it just it doesn't you could be like a panpsychist here like it just, it doesn't provide an argument for physicalism it just says there's this correlation even if paul's right but do you guys have any thoughts yeah so there, there's a couple things that sort of stick out to me there obviously this is a a very brief video. I mean, the, I, I don't want to charge Paul with assertions, right? But I mean, but that is that is sort of what some of these things come down to. Um, first of all, is that he kind of assumes the truth of, of reductionist physicalism, right? Um, that it will be that it just is the case that uh, brain that that uh, um, brain mental states are reducible to physical states, right? Um, but for one thing, there's like Godzook's more views in, in philosophy of mind with respect to just physicalism itself, right? You could be an eliminativist. You could just say consciousness doesn't simplicity or doesn't exist. You could be um, a supervenience. Uh, you could believe supervenience, which is something that like Ben Watkins would hold to, um, which is that uh, the mental supervenes on the physical um, and that kind of thing. And so reductionism isn't even like a given if physicalism is true. So, um, it, and also too, like, I think I agree that there's no real interaction with the literature. And I think that it's important to note that the neuroscience really just underdetermines um, what sort of position and philosophy of mind is true, right? And so it may be the case that, um, let's just take a super Cartesian look at the at the soul and say that there's literally like a soul is just totally unaffected um, by the physical or something like that. Um, if we were to take a view that's that strong, um, then maybe that, then the neuroscience maybe provides evidence against that. Um, but something that I'm more friendly to, I'm, I'm an idealist, but if I were to be a dualist, I would hold to something similar to what Bill Hasker holds to where he's like, it's emergent dualism where he thinks that the, there is an, there is an immaterial soul, which is an emergent property of the arrange, the proper arrangement of physical states of matter. And so I want to say, I would, if I were physical or if I were a dualist, I would want to say something like that. And that's not at all attacked by neuroscience. And so I think it's important to note that there's just no real good interaction here. Um, with respect to um, the literature within the philosophy of mind, with respect to what actually the neuroscience says that's relevant to positions in the philosophy of mind. So anyhow, that's just my thoughts. 
Yeah, yeah, that's good. Um, we'll keep on going because we're going a little long here. To believe that God is necessary to explain free will. But if free will is the ability to have chosen otherwise, given the exact same circumstances, well, that hasn't been demonstrated either. Like the mechanics of a coin sorting machine, that we can make choices doesn't imply that our physical nature would have let us make other choices. You may have been led to believe. Well, there's two things. One, he assumes that we're entirely physical, um, which, you know, can be debated. And then the idea like free will hasn't been demonstrated. It's just kind of like almost like that scientism, like where we need to prove things to be true. And I wonder, like, if anything needs to be demonstrated, I almost think it would need to be determinism because free will seems intuitive intuitively obvious to be true um at least in the same way like uh, the belief in the external world does um getting a little reformed epistemology in here uh, but it just it seems intuitively true that free will exists so if anything would need to be demonstrated i kind of wonder if it would actually need to be determinism um but that's just my quick thoughts here yeah it does seem like a lot of people do have a, a prima facie belief with respect to free will that would need to have a defeater put on it before we choose to believe something like determinism um yeah and i think too one thing that um, that Paul doesn't seem to notice, and this is something me and Joe Schmidt agree on that we've talked about before, um, is that we think that um, either compatibilism or libertarianism are both evidences for theism. So it is more surprising on uh, on the truth of the hypothesis of indifference or, or on naturalism that we would have anything with respect to free will. Um, and so either compatibilism or libertarianism and i think that i would i would suspect that the only difference that if you were to ask paul the only difference he would say between compatibilism and determinism is that uh it's probably just a word game now I, obviously in the literature that's just not the case um but with respect to that like i think that either compatibilism or uh libertarianism either of those would be evidences for god and i think they do stand as evidence for god and someone like joe who's an agnostic would agree with that, that free will is evidence for god so um i don't think i don't think that even assuming that or that assuming that uh, libertarianism is necessary for evidence for God. It, it, I don't think that's true. Yeah. All right. Let's keep on going. I believe that God is necessary to explain morality, but Jesus summed up morality as love your neighbor as yourself. That's just called empathy. Humans are a social species and our survival advantage is working in groups. The optimum balance between helping ourselves and helping others isn't always clear, but we don't need a God to explain it or to sort it out. Realize that because God did it is a thought-free answer to any. Right. Um, before we get into the God did it thing, um, the morality just comes from survival advantages. There's a lot of issues with that, at least from my perspective. Like one of the things is it seems like then morality is just totally um, subjective. If something gives us survival advantage, then we should do it. Like, let's just say, like, for example, like what if rape gives us a survival advantage? Would it then be acceptable to rape? I, I think we'd all agree intuitively just no, that's not OK. Um, so it's just saying morality is a product of like survival advantages. It's just it's really sketchy to me. Yeah, I agree. And, and I think that um, even if you accept that, there, there's a lot of like th there's two things to explain in morality. There's the ontology of morality um, and there's the epistemology of morality. And so um, and I think that the epistemology is actually the, the most difficult thing to get on naturalism. Um, Dustin Cromit has an excellent argument that's basically going to um, say that um, because of these things that atheists came up with in, in I believe, the 20s or the 30s called moral debunking arguments, we don't have any reason to suspect that we would have moral knowledge on naturalism. Um, and so uh, I don't think, I think that, um, or, or we don't have any reason to suspect that our intuitions with respect to morality um, would be grounds to truth. It doesn't seem like the behavior, well, there's a great example that Dustin gives, I can't think of right now, but um, but there, he has a great uh, debate with it, debate with Scott Clifton on inspiring Christianity about that, that I recommend. Um, but anyhow, yeah, I, I just don't think it's at all obvious that Paul has meaningfully answered the question that's being asked by just pointing to evolution. So I don't think I don't think that really solves the either the ontology or the epistemology issue. So, mm -hmm. yeah, any question. It's not a helpful explanation for any question. It's just an extra assumption that we don't need. Number three. Yeah, the God did it thing. We talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but it's just, you know, you, you got to read more because like Paul, if you're listening to this, like that's not what theistic philosophers are saying. It just seems like something that's just kind of spread around online. And it's just kind of, it's just kind of frustrating. It's just like, it'd be the equivalent of me saying like atheists just want to sin or something like that. Cause it's just, it's just not true in what people are actually saying. Yeah. And I, yeah. I agree. And I think too, that, um, uh, if you actually engage with a nuanced version of the, your opponent's argument, um, that that can actually lead to you being like, oh, okay, this is actually what my opponent's saying. And it's really easy to misrepresent your opponent. So making sure you have a complete understanding and a nuanced understanding 
with respect to your opponent's arguments. And this goes for theists as well when dealing with atheistic arguments, um, that having a nuanced mm -hmm. understanding of your opponent's arguments is very, very important. Definitely. Let's keep on going to step three. Hell. Okay. So God isn't necessary to explain anything. But what if I'm afraid of hell? Well, no matter what view of hell you go with, from eternal conscious torment to temporary separation from God to simple soul annihilation, the concept of sin is pretty clear. A gap between what God wants and what we do. But if the book tells us that a Christian God probably doesn't exist and the universe doesn't need a theistic God to exist, then that gap of sin disappears with the deity. Without God, there's no sin. Without sin, there's no hell. Our survival instincts don't calm down immediately when we discover that the bump in the night was just a tree branch in the wind. So just give your mind some time and the intellectual truth will eventually calm your nervous heart. And finally, number four. Right. This is interesting because if Ben Watkins' theory of morality is true, even if there is no God, then we still have moral realism and we still have moral obligations. So I don't, I, I don't think it's obvious um, that if God doesn't exist, then everything is just there's no wrong or right or things like that in, in an objective sense, at least. Um, so it just seems like once again, I don't know. He's just kind of like giving his specific interpretation and saying this is what's true. Um, but what are your guys' thoughts? Yeah. So I, I think that. Um, oh, sorry. He, he does have a, a big issue with respect to um, something like Pascal's wager or, or Liz, mm. Liz Jackson's um, wager. So something like that, um, because uh, the fact is, well, let's just say, I think that um, he's sort of um, the root of this argument is basically assuming that the Bible doesn't work for Christianity, assuming that uh, theistic arguments don't work. Um, we have no reason to believe in hell. Um, however, I think you should actually have a positive credence, something close to one, if you're going to make something like this, uh, if you're going to assume something like this. If your credence for naturalism or atheism is very high, then I think it's a, a reasonable thing to not be afraid of hell or or not even, or rather to not even make considerations with respect to something like that. Um, however, I think if your credence level is closer to 50 or something like that, then I think that you should... Um, and we and you, one could get into all the complications of Pascal's wager, but I think you should take something like that into account with respect to the question that Paul's talking about. So his third his third step is really predicated on the truth of his first two steps, which are really only undermining defeaters rather than rebutting defeaters. Mm -hmm. You thoughts, Jacob? I mean, it's all well and good to assume your own uh, worldview. I mean, mm -hmm. it's essentially like um, atheist presuppositionalism. And you know, honestly, I, I don't really mind the reformed uh, epistemology or that kind of stuff. But when it's like atheistic and they are assuming their own conclusions, it does get kind of annoying. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it seems like it's like, oh, there's no good arguments for God. Therefore, God does not exist, which wouldn't follow. Church, I get it. Your friends and family are in the Christian church and the Christian church members are your friends and family. Most of your social eggs are in the church basket. But if your shared belief in God was the only thing holding these relationships together, it wasn't really much of a connection. And if certain Christians want to sever other connections because of a disagreement about one thing, there's not much you can do about it. But the church isn't the only place you can find community. Sure, there are even some groups centered around non-beliefs. But you don't need to think about that ever again if you don't want to. And if you can't stop or you need to heal before moving on, we've got you. Church doesn't have a lock on tight relationships. There are communities centered around books, movies, sports, fitness, music, art, food, pets, games, science, technology, learning, whatever thing makes you excited. You can find your tribe online or in person once you feel safe doing that again. And that's it. That's all. Let go of the book, the God, the hell, and the church, and you'll stop being a Christian. As the song should have said, just stop believing. Right. Well... Last thing we're going to say here, but it's just like, again, it just doesn't seem like he's actually engaging with anything. And like the, he does make a good point with like the church though, because if Christians are just going to cut off non-believers for leaving, then the church is failing. It's not like we're, if someone like leaves the Christian faith, you're just supposed to cut them off, never talk to them. Like that's not what we're doing as Christians. So we should love and be caring to people who leave the church. Um, so he's right about that. But once again, I just, I don't even know what to say at this point. Um, what are you guys' thoughts? I mean, what kind of church was he going to where this was happening? Like, seriously, I, I understand that there are bad churches and I, I've been in my share of crummy churches before. But what, what kind of church was he going to where it was only the belief in God that was holding his relationship with these people together? What was he actually that committed to a church or a community? Because I, I don't know how your communities are, guys, but my, my church is very 
open, very friendly, very good biblical teaching. And it, it's not just the belief in God that holds these relationships together. It's that we actually care for all these people. And as many studies have shown, churches are needed. I mean, even in the kind of you know, pandemic situation, the lack of churches has caused a whole bunch of social problems and the fact that they've been shut down and all this stuff. And so, again, I want to know what church he went to so I can really tell them to get their act together because it's like some weird fundamentalist church. I mean, yeah. it just, it's it just upsetting. I just think about like my church community and like the Christians I'm friends with. Like if I came out as an atheist, which I'm not, and I'm probably I don't no, I never will be an atheist. Um, they wouldn't just like reject me and cut me off and never talk to me. They'd be disappointed. They'd want me to come back to the faith, but they still love me and care about me. And I'd agree just totally with what Jacob said. If that's the only thing keeping your relationship together, it seems like a pretty bad foundation for a church. Yeah, and I agree with you, Zach, right? I think that that of the people that I, I count among friends of mine that are believers, right, I think they would be really disappointed or, or disheartened or sad about that um, if, if something like that came to pass, if I became agnostic or atheist. Um, and so, but I don't think that they would be cutting me off or something like that. Um, and so I, I think, too, this is kind of an interesting thought. Um, this is a bit, a bit philosophical, but... Um, uh, you know, with respect to uh, fideism, I, I I think that there is no such thing as as true fide or fideists who, who think that there are no reasons to believe in God. I think that those people believe that there are pragmatic reasons. And so I think if you think that there are, are some pragmatic reasons um, with respect to your belief in God um, that should uh, um, encourage your belief, then I, th I think that that's a, a good thing um, if you want to believe in that in that sort of way. Um, so that's just sort of a different way of looking at it. But yeah, I agree. I think that. Um, uh, if you're that you should i think i agree with paul actually that you should have stronger connections but i think that that's the case that a lot of people do have really strong connections with people um and if they think that people will ditch them um if they stop being christians then they should reassess um that aspect because it's probably not the case mm -hmm. yeah um i mean we've gone through this whole video so i'll just give you guys a chance to just say like any last thoughts you have thank you Kyle, for joining us for like the last like 15 minutes all i'd say is like with this video and if you're listening paul you're a great guy i like you a lot um you're cool you're smart but just we need to engage more with the other side because we can make a lot of projections on the people if we're not actually engaging with what the best of what the other side has to say so i just say engage more with like what the best of what the other side has to say whether you're a christian or atheist i think you could agree on that um so that's kind of what i'd conclude with what do you, do you guys have any last thoughts yeah oh sorry go ahead jacob if you want to go and I'll, I'll just echo exactly what uh, Zach said, because like, I know people are going to make fun of me for this, but I look forward to reading Richard Carrier and his kind of stuff, just, just because I want to have that in my bookshelf and be like, you know what, I have read the wackiest and the worst, but nevertheless, I have read it. And I've taken the time to uh, take these ideas and consider them. If we're not doing that, then honestly, Paul's side of the argument will lose because there is this uh, foundation that he is not standing on, which is good scholarship, good literature, which he clearly just doesn't have, or at least not in this video, but this is some kind of weird atheist evangelism kind of video. He's like an atheist preacher, like Aaron Ra or something. Um, but no, it's, it, it is disappointing, the current situation where he presents these assertions without evidence and his audience will just eat them and there won't be any questioning of it so obviously my my message to paul will be the exact same thing what uh cast that interact with the other side and take the time to seriously consider the arguments because if you don't then videos like this our responses will become all the more common and a whole lot easier to do yeah and, and i i can't can't agree more um you know i think that it's super important to engage what the other side has to offer um, I think it's super important to engage realistically. I think that uh, in other videos and in this video that Paul has shown that, and I, and I like Paul, Paul is from Edmonton and I love the Oilers. So if you're watching this, Paul, the Oilers are awesome. Mike Smith is a great goaltender. Anyhow, just, just want to throw that out there. Um, but uh, you know, I think that um, uh, we can love someone as a person and also realize that they have no idea what they're talking about and they need to engage more with literature, engage more with the ideas that they have. Um, and I think too, it's fine, right, to have, to put out some ideas that are wrong and then sort of realize that they're wrong and then double back on yourself and be like, huh, well, maybe I should have researched this topic a little more. Uh, maybe I should engage more with with the actual information on this. 
Um, but I think we should avoid videos like this um, that are really just full of assertions and, and Paul's own personal opinions, um, and that we should engage more with um, robust responses and thoughts with respect to the literature and that kind of thing. Um, because I, I really, in this context, what's really important to me is I want to raise the level of conversation so that atheists and theists are on the same level and we can have meaningful discussions with regards to these things and meaningful disagreements where we can say, look, you are epistemically justified as an atheist and I'm epistemically justified as a theist. Um, but I think what I think is true and here's why. And the atheist says, I think what I think is true and here's why. And we can have those meaningful engagements. I think that's very important. Yeah. Um, Jacob Caruso Apologetics, thank you so much for coming on. It's been so much fun. I encourage everyone, if you're listening, just subscribe to Caruso Apologetics. Great channel out there. Um, and for Kyle, Thanks, thank you for coming on at the last moment. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm sure we'll be plugging your My YouTube pleasure. channel whenever it comes out. So it's been a lot of fun. And if Paul, if you're still listening to this, and if you are, you're the man, we encourage you to keep engaging, keep looking at the best of what we have to say, and we'll keep looking at the best of what you have to say. And hopefully we're all just seeking truth. So thank you everyone for tuning in. The programmer projects for all thank praise jesus thank you jesus uh, um kelly v person i don't know your name and everyone else have a good one god bless